Welcome to Faith Life Fellowship Podcast with Dr. Scott Forrest. Today, Dr. Forrest continues with part two of the series on the power of imagination. All right, I'm very excited about this. This is a subject that's near and dear to my heart. We're talking this morning about the power of imagination, specifically applying it to fulfilling your calling in life. And this is a continuation along that line. Amen? And uh, as I said last week, one of the most important gifts that God has given unto mankind is the gift of imagination. Imagination in the heart of man is extremely powerful, and it can be used for good or for evil. I believe that imagination is the tool that God has given unto us to enable us to see things that are not seen in the natural realm. And in that regard, I believe that imagination is at the very core of Bible-believing faith. Hebrews 11.1 Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is the evidence of things not seen in the natural realm, but those things that are not seen in the natural realm can be seen through the eye of faith or your heart your mind, and your imagination. Amen? Proverbs 23, 7 says, As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So it's important how you think about yourself. Because ultimately, whether you realize it or not, you will become the person that you think you are. So it's absolutely vital to get a biblical picture of who you really are And to begin to see yourself that way. Amen? If you can see yourself becoming the person that God called you to be, then you can become the person that God called you to be. If you can see yourself doing the things that God called you to do, then you can do the things that God called you to do. Amen? One preacher said it like this. If you can see it, You can be it. Amen. I heartily agree with that. Praise the Lord. We talked last week about the wrong use of imagination and referenced the Tower of Babel as an example of using the power of imagination to build something great for ungodly and idolatrous purposes. We talked about the right use of imagination, how God used words, dreams, and elements of nature to paint a picture in the hearts and minds of biblical patriarchs such as Abraham, Joseph, and King David. And in my own life, I shared how I I dreamed for many, many years of flying military aircraft before I actually did it. I dreamed it. I saw myself flying military aircraft in my imagination And in my dreams until one day I actually did it for real. Amen. It's important for you to see who God has called you to be so you can become that person. Many times he'll give you a vision of what you can be if you'll trust him and follow his plan for your life. I think about worship leader Cyan Alford. I share this all the time, but it it so blesses me. Cyan Alford, many years ago when we were still in Louisiana going to Word of Life Center in Shreveport, he came and he shared how God led him into worship ministry. He was 19 years old. 
He got saved and baptized in the Holy Ghost, started talking in tongues, and had no idea what God had called him to do. So it's amazing to me that he was this wise, but he determined he was going to go into his prayer closet every night and spend 30 minutes praying in tongues, praying in the Spirit, until he heard from God what it is exactly God had called him to do and God had called him to be. And I forget how long into the process this happened. I think he said it was about the three-week mark, but I could be wrong on that. But somewhere in the process, this young, fired-up man of God, 19 years old, didn't really know the Word that well, didn't really know that much about the Spirit, but was wise enough to know that he needed to pray in the Holy Ghost. And as he was praying one night, he said he had a vision, and the Lord appeared to him and said, I'm going to show you what I've called you to do. He said he reached in front of him, and he pulled back a veil, and he saw himself in the vision leading praise and worship. He had a full orchestra behind him, singers, the whole nine yards, as we say in the military. He had a full entourage. He was on a platform, and he was leading not hundreds, but thousands of people in praise and worship. And he wept, and he wept, and he wept at the sight of it. He said it was just so glorious. The Lord turned to him and said, it's time for you to dry your tears. He said, this is what I called you to be. This is what I called you to do. And he said, thank you, Lord. There's just one problem. (laughs) That's a wonderful vision, Lord. Thank you for showing me. I am really, uh, I'm undone. But I do have a few questions. How am I going to do this if I don't even know how to read music? I don't even play an instrument. I'm not even sure I can sing. He had no idea that he had musical gifts on the inside of him, but the Lord showed him that he did. How many know that Cyan Alfred, to get to the place of glory, that vision that he saw, he had to take some steps from where he was to where God saw him in that glorious vision, right? And it wasn't going to happen overnight. How many know Cyan had to take music lessons? He probably had to learn how to read music. He had to learn how to play the piano. He probably had to take some vocal lessons. He probably had to pursue a path of instruction that led him into the skill set that God had developed for him. Now, how many know he probably picked things up a little quicker than the average Joe? Because that was God's plan and anointing on his life. Now, I believe he's one of the worship leaders over at Gateway Church, you know, that little tiny little church, Robert Morris's church over in Dallas, Texas. You should check out some of his stuff. So as opposed to the wrong use of your imagination, that's the right use of your imagination. He had to remember that vision and picture himself and see himself playing instruments, singing songs, and learning to flow in the Spirit and lead hundreds and thousands of people into the presence of God. Glory to God. That encourages me, even if it doesn't encourage anybody in this place. I want to show you some biblical examples of patriarchs in the Bible who saw themselves doing what God called them to do, and ultimately, because they saw themselves doing it, they did it. But I want to show you the exact opposite. If you can't see yourself doing what God called you to do, you will be defeated in life. You will not do what God called you to do. You have got to see it if you're going to be it. Amen? Let's begin with the 12 spies of Moses. 
Numbers chapter 13. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Send thou men that they may search the land of Canaan, which I give unto the children of Israel. Of every tribe of their fathers shall you send a man, every one a ruler among them. And Moses, by the commandment of the Lord, sent them from the wilderness of Paran. All those men were heads of the children of Israel. Moses sends out 12 spies, each one of them leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel at that time. Let's continue reading in verse 17. And Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said unto them, Go you up this way southward and go up into the mountain and see the land, what it is, and the people that dwelleth therein, whether they be strong or weak, few or many. And what the land is that they dwell in, whether it be good or bad, and what cities they be that they dwell in, whether in tents or in strongholds. And what the land is, whether it be fat or lean, whether there be wood therein or not. And be ye of good courage, and bring of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. Amen. They were sent by Moses, according to God's command, to spy out the land that was promised unto them. Amen. Isn't it interesting that God promised them that land, but they still had to spy it out in preparation to fight to take the land that God gave them. Isn't that interesting? Praise God. They were sent to assess the strength of their enemy and to observe the richness and the abundance that flowed in the promised land. Let's continue in verse 25. And they returned from searching of the land after 40 days. And they went and came to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the children of Israel unto the wilderness of Paran to Kadesh and brought back word unto them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him and said, We came into the land whither thou sentest us, and surely it floweth with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it. Nevertheless, the people are strong that dwell in the land, and the cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. Amen. I like that guy. But the men that went up with him said, We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is the land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof, and all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight remember that the 12 spies all saw the same thing when they spied out the land. They saw that the land was indeed a land which floweth with milk and honey. They saw that the enemy was formidable and that many of them were giants. The difference between what became two opposing points of view ultimately boils down to this. 
how they saw themselves determined how they viewed the task that was set before them. It was how they saw themselves that made the difference. Let's go to chapter 14 and begin at verse 1. And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, and the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God we had died in this wilderness? And wherefore hath the Lord brought us into this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and our children should be a prey? Were it not better for us to return into Egypt? And they said one to another, Let us make a captain, and let us return into Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, which were of them that searched the land, rent their clothes. And they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to search it is an exceeding good land. If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it us a land which floweth with milk and honey. Only rebel not ye against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. Glory to God. I like those guys. Joshua and Caleb did not deny that the enemy was formidable. They probably knew they were physically outmatched and numerically outnumbered. Nevertheless, they saw themselves as victors, not victims. They knew that if God was on their side, there was no enemy that could ever hope to stand against them. Amen? Unfortunately, because of the evil report of the other ten spies, the entire camp of Israel saw themselves in a completely different way. They saw themselves as outmatched and hopelessly outnumbered. They saw themselves as insects compared to the giants in the land and were convinced that the enemy saw them in the same way. They saw themselves as defeated, and because they saw themselves as defeated, they were defeated. As a result, very sad story if you read the whole thing. As a result, God was grieved with that entire generation. Now listen to this. This is staggering to me. Out of an estimated two to three million people, only two people were allowed to step foot on the promised land. Joshua and Caleb. Only two people from that original generation. That I find staggering. Staggering. Let's talk about the two spies of Joshua. It's spy day. Forty years later, when Joshua and the armies of Israel crossed the Jordan River, supernaturally, by the way, it parted just like the Red Sea parted for the Israelites uh, before. You know, I was in Jerusalem with the Marines, and uh, me and my Marine buddies, uh, we had some time off, and uh, we hired a taxi driver to take us through the city and show us all the, you know, show us all the touristy sites, but show us the sites that, you know, the tour guides didn't take people to. So I was having a conversation, you know, with the cab driver. My buddies were in the back said, hey, 
you're spiritual, you, you love Jesus, talk, talk to this Jewish cab driver. So I'm striking up a conversation with the guy, and I said, you know, first of all, I said, probably the dumbest thing you could ever say to somebody who lives in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is a hilly city. It's like, duh, there's hills everywhere, you know. When I finally broke through the awkwardness, I started, you know, just testing his Bible knowledge. And uh, I told him that Joshua and the company of Israel uh, came through the Jordan River and it parted just like the Red Sea. Oh, no, no. Red Sea, only thing that parted. And that's this. You're mistaken. I'm like, no, I'm pretty sure I've read it in my Bible. No, you're mistaken. This is your Christian Bible. No, I said, this is the book of Joshua, <laughs> you know. This is in your Bible. <laughs> anyway, I could not convince the guy. So, you know, one of the strangest revelations that I had when I was in Israel was the majority of the Jews in Israel are secular. They're just Jews because they were raised that way, you know. I remember, you know, we were driving through the city and there was a, there was a guy dressed in white and he was preaching on a street corner, you know, and he was, he was a rabbi, <laughs> And as we drove by, the cab driver turned to me and says, ah, we have those religious nuts. They are everywhere, you know. <laughs> They're a secular nation. They need Jesus. Yes. And the Bible says one day the whole nation is going to turn to Jesus. Amen. Amen. Looking forward to that. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. So back to the subject at hand. Forty years later, when Joshua and the armies of Israel crossed the Jordan River and approached Jericho, the Bible makes it clear how the enemy viewed the approaching Israelites, and it was not insect-like. Listen to this, Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. And Joshua the son of Nun sent out of Chittim two men to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, even Jericho. And they went and came into an harlot's house named Rahab and lodged there. Now, Rahab, if you read the rest of the story, hid the two spies from the king of Jericho and told them the truth about how the people on the west side of Jordan really viewed the approaching armies of Israel. It's quite telling, actually. Uh, picking it up in verse 9. And she said unto the men, I know that the Lord hath given you the land, and that your terror is fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did unto the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side, Jordan, Sihon, and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we had heard these things, our hearts did melt, neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. That was the real story of how the enemy viewed them. They were quaking in fear. And yet because the people of Israel saw themselves as grasshoppers and thought the enemy saw them in the same manner, they were not able to go in and possess the land. I believe that the way the enemy perceives you is largely determined by the way you perceive yourself. When you begin to see yourself the way that God sees you as an advancing conqueror, not a weak and defenseless insect, the enemy begins to see you in the same way. I like to imagine it this way. When I wake up every morning, the enemy quakes in fear and begins to shout, 
Oh no! Scott's awake. He's got the word of God in his heart. And it's about to come out of his mouth. He's going to cut us to pieces with that sword. Our hearts are melting and our courage has drained. It's hopeless. Let's head for the hills. Quite a different picture. Amen. Well, what if the devil hears you? I want him to hear me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If God be for me, who in the world can hope to be against me? Christians need to grow a spine and start standing up and declaring who they are in Christ. Quit letting the devil kick you around. Quit looking at yourself as some creepy insect that the giant only has to step on to get rid of. See yourself as the conqueror that you are. Romans chapter 8 says, you're not just a conqueror. You are more than a conqueror through him that loved you. Glory to God. A personal example of seeing yourself the way God sees you. I've shared this before in a different vein, but I think it bears repeating. When the Lord was leading me to go back to grad school and get my Ph.D., yes, I have a Ph.D., and I always joke around, if you got a Ph.D. and you're not helping people with it, you might as well stand for post-hole digger. Amen? But when the Lord was dealing with me to go back after 10 years, I had not been in grad school for 10 years, I went back and got my master's 10 years previously, and the Lord was dealing with me about completing the process and getting my Ph.D. I found out that I had to take the GRE exam again, the graduate record exam. If you're going to get into grad school, it's a test that you have to take, even today. I checked on the Internet last night. It's just been totally revised and uh, redesigned. An advisor told me, this is at Louisiana Tech University in uh, Ruston, Louisiana, an advisor told me that the scores from my first take of the GRE were high enough for the master's program, which I had completed. But to get the Ph.D., I needed a score that was a little bit higher because they had a higher bar for the Ph.D. program in micro and nano systems engineering. So I said, oh, okay, so how much higher? I was thinking 50 points. I could probably handle that. Uh, your scores need to come up 200 points to qualify for the Ph.D. program. I mean, literally, I felt my knees buckle, you know, <laughs> behind the desk as he said that to me. I thought, you know, I know a little bit about statistics, and that seems pretty out there. That seems like an outlier. That seems very unlikely and almost unheard of that somebody could improve their GRE score that much. And I think I shared this last time. I even went down to uh, Books A Million, and I got a book, and I, I found it. The other day in my closet, I still have it. GRE for dummies. I went through all the exercises in that book for weeks and weeks and weeks after I had scheduled the test. And uh, I remember feeling pretty good about it. All these little techniques, how you can eliminate uh, distractors and get to the right answer as quick as possible. Make your best educated guess and you know so on and so forth. And then one day I flipped over on the back of the book and it said, if you'll do all of these exercises diligently uh, over a period of weeks, go to take your test. You can expect to raise your score by as much as 50 points. <laughs> I'm telling you, my heart sank. I was like, oh, my Lord, I need 200. And this book says I can only get 50 even if I dotted every I and crossed every T and studied everything in this book. 
So I went to the Lord. I started praying in the Holy Ghost. I said, Lord, you're the one that called me to do this. You're the one that gave me a directive years ago that I was to go back and get advanced degrees in engineering. I got my master's. Now you're prompting me to get my Ph.D. In order for me to get this Ph.D., I got to somehow take this test and raise my score 200 points or I won't even get in the program. A couple days after I prayed that prayer, I had a dream. I want you to listen to this because this is, this is germane to this whole thing we've been talking about here today. I had a dream, and in this dream, I was facing three adversaries. They came to do mortal combat with me, bare-knuckle fighting. And they were approaching me, and they were big, and they were mean. They were bigger than me. They were stronger than me, and they were mean-looking. And they were coming at me, and I braced myself for a fight. I knew I was outnumbered. And I remember the guy on the extreme left, he tripped, then he fell on this hard floor, hit his head, and he knocked himself out. So he's out of the fight. So already my odds have improved from three to one to two to one. Amen? And then I stood there, and I stood my ground, and I remember balling up my fist, and I said, you come at me in the name of your God. You bring in doubt and unbelief, but I come at you in the name of the Lord God of Israel. He has anointed me, he has empowered me, and I will defeat you. And then I woke up. I woke up before they actually converged on me and the fight began. So I asked the Lord, I said, what was that dream all about? And he prompted in my spirit to remember that the GRE was a test that had three components. There was one component that did not count And there was the math and the verbal, and they take the math and the verbal, and they put them together, and they get a combined score, and that's what they call your GRE score. So I said to the Lord, I said, so the guy that knocked himself out, he's the part of the test that doesn't count. The Lord said, yeah. So the other two guys are math and verbal. So you're telling me in this dream that you've empowered me to overcome them, and I'm able to get this score up 200 points. And I felt the Lord say, yeah, that's exactly what I'm telling you. You just trust me. Spend some extra time praying in the spirit. Keep studying your booklet right up into the time. It's time for you to take the test and go there and go in the strength of the Lord and you will succeed. My point is this. Before the dream, before the word of the Lord, I could not see myself taking that test and raising it up 200 points. I could not see it. I couldn't conceive it. I couldn't grab hold of such a possibility. It seemed impossible to me. But after the dream, after the word of the Lord came to me in dream form, I suddenly began to see myself as able to make the score up 200 points. It changed the way I saw myself. And as a result, there was quite a supernatural conclusion to this story. So I go to the Sylvan Learning Center in Bossier City, Louisiana, and I go in to take the test. And to my dismay, they said, you're the first person to take the newly designed computerized test. I thought, this is not good. (laughs) Remember the old uh, fill in the dot test and you could go back and you could mark questions that you were unsure about. and You could come back if you had some extra time and try and figure them out. Well, in the computerized exam, you had to make your best guess and go to the next question. That was it. There was no going back. I thought, great. But I heard the Lord say, it doesn't matter. You are empowered. So I sat at that computer for almost four hours. I went through the verbal first and then the math. 
And to be honest with you, I really had no sense in the natural of how things were going. The only thing I did notice is for the first time ever taking an exam like this, I was able to finish every section and answer every question. I had never done that before. Not in the previous time that I took the GRE, nor the practice GREs that I had taken. So at the end of the exam, the screen came up and said, you got two options. If you hit this button, uh, we can erase this, and it'll be as if you never took the test, and if you don't feel good about it, you can come back and take it another day. And the other option was, you hit this button, and we're sending your scores to your school immediately. So I remember I kind of hovered over the option A and option B. I was like, oh, shut my love. And then finally the Lord said, get it over with. And so I just said, send the scores, you know, and because it said once you send the scores, we'll flash them up on the screen. So sent the scores. A couple seconds later, the score came up, and I raised my score, not 200 points, but 210 points. Amen. Because I saw myself raising that score 200 points. I saw myself as well able. I said like Joshua and Caleb, this test is bread for me. I'm going to eat it up. I'm going to tear it up. I'm going to do exactly what I need to do to get into this Ph.D. program. And not only am I going to get into the program, I'm going to finish. I'm going to finish well. I completed my Ph.D. four years later with a 3.75 grade point average. Amen. To God be all the glory. Hallelujah. So it's important the way you see yourself when God calls you to a certain task or asks you to become a person that you can't quite see yourself being. You got to see yourself being that person. You got to do the things that seem impossible. You got to see yourself doing those things. Amen. I don't know about y'all, but that encouraged me. That was a good testimony. So let me wrap this up by saying this. Learn to harness the power of godly imagination when it comes to your calling, your dream, or your vision. When God shows you a picture of what you can be, what you can do, hold on to that picture until you see it come to pass. Amen? Amen. We hope you enjoyed today's message on the power of imagination. If you'd like to hear more about Faith Life Fellowship, and access more of Dr. Forrest's teaching, you can visit our website at gofaithlife.com. Also, visit and like our Facebook page at Faith Life Wilmington. We believe in God the Father. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit. And He's given us new life. We believe in the crucifixion. We believe that he conquered death. We believe in the resurrection. And he's coming back again.